Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 35 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, our topic of focus is the excellent topic of nasal breathing or breathing through the nose. So we all know that we have a nose and we have a mouth and we can breathe through the nose and we can also breathe through the mouth. So we have some questions about the nose and the mouth and is breathing through one of these orifices better inherently than the other? We, um, we tend to hear a lot of a lot of conversations and claims out there that nasal breathing is uh, optimal and important and healthier for the body than mouth breathing or oral breathing. And so that is what we wanted to take a look at today in this episode. So uh, the claims, the claims are widespread. And the question, our question is, are these claims evidence-based? And, you know, after a pretty thorough look into this topic and some of the research on this topic, it's become clear to us that it's not a simple black or white issue, you know, like as with just about all of the topics that, that Travis and I tend to discuss on the podcast, that this nasal versus oral breathing topic is probably not so black or white. And um, we'll, we'll kind of dive into the nuances and the intricacies of that as we, as we talk and go through this material today. But with all of that said, obviously taking time to focus on this breath-based topic is super relevant for us as a yoga community because we all know that the breath is so central to so much of what we do on the yoga mat. Uh, within yoga, we have pranayama, which basically means breath or life force control. And clearly pranayama is an integral part of a yoga practice. So when we're practicing yoga, we're often ujjayi breathing, which is a type of breath that we do on the mat uh, that we often do. And it's through the nose. And we tend to do ujjayi breath like kind of all throughout a yoga practice. And that that is a form of pranayama or breath control. But then we also, within a yoga context, have kind of specific pranayama exercises that we may, that may be a part of our yoga practice. Things like alternate nostril breathing or more, more focus, like we are doing this breathing technique right now. So because of that major role that the breath plays in a yoga practice, we think that this nasal breathing topic is like extra relevant for our community, but it's also just super fascinating when you really look into it. And it is certainly relevant for just anyone with a body. I would definitely suggest that. Uh, and also BKS Iyengar, who is one of the fathers of modern postural yoga. 
he would famously say that the nose is for breathing and the mouth is for eating. And I think that's kind of a funny phrase, but Iyengar would definitely talk about that. So our plan is just to take a little deeper look into some of these claims that we have on our hands. And while it's just inherently interesting and valuable and rewarding to learn more about this topic of, of uh, respiration and taking breath in and out, we also think, as usual, that just taking the time to just kind of look a little deeper or examine some of the claims that we tend to hear or the beliefs that we might have about things can be just in general on re regardless of what the topic is, can be helpful for just improving our scientific thinking skills. And so that's yet just another reason why we wanted to take a, a look at this today. So just anytime that we question things that we maybe tend to believe or assume or hear out there, we, we may choose to change our mind about certain aspects, but we also may just choose to continue to believe them because upon examination, it seems like this is actually really rooted in reliable science. And so regardless of like the outcome, the process of that questioning can be super good for us in our like scientifically thinking minds. So our plan for the episode today, just so we know kind of what it's, what it's going to look like, is we want to start off by talking about nasal breathing within the context of like a yoga or a mindfulness practice. So nasal breathing in that context. And then we want to turn our focus to talking about nasal breathing more on your day-to-day -day level or the idea of like nasal breathing for optimal health and that uh, the claims that nasal breathing is is better than mouth breathing and things like that. So we will shift our focus to that. And then at the end of the episode, we're really excited because we're bringing in a special guest and she's a science educator with her PhD in immunology and she's a yoga teacher. And her name is Rachel David. We're super excited to introduce you to her. So she's going to come in and um, we will have an interview with her about a popular book that I'm pretty sure many people in our audience will have heard of. And this book is called Breath by James Nestor. And uh, yeah, it's a really popular book in general, but also in the yoga world, very widely read. And we wanted to get Rachel's take on it as a science educator. So she's going to talk to us about that. And in addition to the book Breath, there's another popular book out there that came out before Breath um, that's called The Oxygen Advantage. And that book is by an author named Patrick McCune. And uh, Travis and I, we're going to talk, we're going to talk a bit about that and also about a breathing method that many of our listeners may have heard of called the Buteyko breathing method. Uh, it tends to have a presence like in some circles of the yoga world. It's also just kind of popular in general, the Buteyko breathing method. And just in case uh, you may have heard of it, but not known its name or remembered its name, but the Buteyko breathing method tends to advocate things like uh, we all tend to chronically overbreathe or hyperventilate. These are kind of some of the claims of Buteyko. And uh, that is like a, a root cause of many health problems that we experience. And so we address that and treat those problems by, by breathing less, taking like shallower breaths, slowing our breath and breathing through our nose. And also practices like mouth taping, like taping the mouth at night. So just, just to say that those are some of the points that come along with Buteyko. 
Uh, and so maybe you have heard of it, even if it didn't ring a bell when you heard that method, that name. So basically, we plan to talk about the popular books and the Bottega method, uh, kind of toward maybe the second half-ish of this episode. So that is everything we're planning to tackle today. And before we dive into our content, just a reminder about some ways that you can support our work with this podcast. You can, of course, subscribe to this podcast and leave us a rating or a review. Another great way to support us is by subscribing to my email newsletter, which will keep you up to date on all of our offerings. And you can do that at jennyrollings.com slash newsletter. The link is in the show notes. And a final way you could consider supporting us is joining Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, which is this really awesome, one-of-a-kind monthly strength training program that we designed for yogis. You can use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program. And um, you can find more at JennyRollings.com, and the link is in the show notes. So with all of that said, uh, Travis, I'm so glad to have you here with me today to talk about this obviously kind of big uh, and weighty and nuanced topic. Uh, I'm wondering, like, what sorts, what sorts of things have you heard just kind of out there in the ethers about um, nasal breathing? Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for doing such a thorough introduction. Uh, You're welcome. I think you covered everything. And I, I think... Did I? Okay, good. Uh, it's funny because we usually put the links to the show notes or the link in the show notes to important things, but I think we're probably not going to link those books. Oh, would you agree, would you agree with wait, that? Why, why, well, we why don't, are we not going to link? We're not advocating necessarily for the books, right? <laughs> there, If people have happened to... St- stumble across them so far and uh then be that as it may (laughs) or if people are interested of course they're very easily find they can find them yeah but anyway uh yeah so i've heard of these books for sure and then just people talking whether they're talking about the books or just talking about the concepts outside of the books Right, right right and yeah nasal breathing is like all the rage these days and mouth breathing will kill you. Right. So maybe not fast, but slowly. And uh, we should be taping our mouths shut and Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. doing all those things. Cause apparently nasal breathing is that much better for you. That's what I hear. (laughs) That's not, uh, not necessarily going to be our conclusion. Right. Right. Well, and and also, I definitely don't think our conclusion is also going to be like, that's completely wrong. You know, that's 100%, you know, right? Right. That's, it's nuanced, right? Right. So that's the, that's the fascinating thing about this topic, right? Is that the information that's in those books or in the research is, Mm -hmm. does, there is evidence Mm -hmm. supporting nasal breathing in, and like you said, it's nuanced. It depends what your objective Mm -hmm. is and what 
type of outcome you're interested in, whether it's some sort of short-term benefit or some of sort of long-term benefit. Yeah. And the, yeah. the challenge is, well, what does the research show? And then what can we reasonably conclude from that? But to your point, I, like I said, those things in jest, but there is certainly evidence supporting the benefits of nasal breathing, like full stop. So right, 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 right. Not, and we're, yes. not, totally, like, like you yeah. said, it's not to say that this is a whole bunch of BS, uh, <laughs> but rather that it's, it's more, like you said, there's way more to it and we yeah. have to put on our critical thinking caps because if we just read the books and listen to the, what some of the talking heads are saying, then yes. we might not be getting the full story. A hundred percent. And um, what you were saying was just making me think about, and I think this is such a common theme with, with ba basically everything that you and I tend to talk about, but <laughs> like the human, the human body and our experiences in our bodies is super complex and multifactorial. And I mean, I'd, it could take a, a life of just studying um, the science of the body to like fully get to certain levels of comprehension. And so I find that what you and I tend to kind of combat quite a bit or question quite a bit is just when a lot of the black or white claims right. uh, and a lot of just um, oversimplifying and also people not even realizing that they're oversimplifying because maybe some of that Dunning-Kruger effect that we've talked about before, like Mm -hmm. you, you learn a little bit about something, but then you think just because you, you think that, that you know everything about it and therefore we can, we can just over, it's easy to oversimplify things. So I feel like nasal breathing, good mouth breathing, mm -hmm. bad mm -hmm. is a perfect example of this black or white thinking. Green check mark, red X. Green check. But it's exactly. it was funny when you introduced the topic, because it's like, well, you already know what our conclusion is going to be because the conclusion <laughs> is the same every time. <laughs> which is that it's, right. it's not black or white. And so if that, I think most of our listeners, that's why they listen, right? But if that's yes. boring to you to be like, well, I just want to know what the simple oh, answer yeah. is. And you never tell me the simple answer. Uh, then <laughs> that's, yeah, we're like a broken record. But I think that's why, that's like the fun of the episodes, right? Or the podcast You're is, so well, let's, right. let's dive into it. Because um, the value, at least I feel like the value is in the inquiry and in everything that we learn just through examining these topics. And um, yeah, if we just went with like the black or white or green check, check mark, red X, there's just, there's not much learning to be had there, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's in this process, I feel like, of the investigation where there's just so much like richness there and, and also fascination there. So I guess with that said, we also just kind of wanted to make it clear for this episode that, and we did, we had another episode, Travis, that we did like this, which was our episode on interoception, where I had done a whole bunch, I pretty, you know, I, I'd read a lot of the research on interoception and I'd put that together for a course on my website. And then we did an episode on it where you didn't really know, you hadn't looked that much into it, but I had looked a lot into it and I was kind of presenting information to you. Uh, and that is also kind of what's going on with this episode today. There where are the going plan to be is... two experts and I'm not one of them. <laughs> oh, because our other expert is Rachel David coming in at the end. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not an expert. But like you said, you've done a lot of preparation and reading into mm -hmm. this. And I, yeah, I put together a lot for this. So, less. so I'm right. going to be but learning you... along with the listeners. Exactly. And so this episode, 
I hope it won't be so much, but it may consist of a little more of like me telling, you know, I might, I might be talking a little more, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'm so, excited to, to learn. Yeah. To, yes. I, um, yes. I'm excited to just have this discussion. Uh, let's, uh, I guess one of the first things, and we've already touched on this a bit, but one of the first things that uh, I wanted to lay out was that I think it's important that we, that we realize that there is a distinction between, between a breathing practice or a breathing technique that mm -hmm. is done, you know, for a temporary amount of time, it's done consciously. We're thinking about it. We're doing it in that moment. And that's a lot of what we tend to find like in a yoga context is maybe right. breathing practices or techniques. So that is like one context in which we might talk or think about nasal versus oral breathing. And then it's a, t it's a different context to talk about or think about day-to-day -day breathing mm -hmm. and just general, your auto automatic breathing pattern, your unconscious breathing pattern all throughout your life and the connection between that and something like optimal health. Right. Right. Because it's easy to look at something and say, oh, and especially from a yoga lens, like we feel pretty good saying nasal breathing. The, mm -hmm. the, the breathing techniques that we use in yoga, which are all or mostly nasal breathing, we, mm -hmm. we believe that those have benefits and they do have yes. benefits, which they, we'll talk yes. about, right? And then, yeah. but it's, it's a big step, too big of a step, I think, to say, well, because of that, Nasal breathing is better always, yes. all the time always. and for our yeah. uh, overall health, because that's <laughs> a, it's a different question. Exactly. But I think that you can see what I can see, which is that I feel like the two kind of get melded together. Like we, we, we take um, what we know or experience on the mat, and then we just want to apply it to everything else. And we think mm -hmm. that this means that when really these are like two different contexts. Yeah. And two different like study designs you can you're yes, study people in a yoga or whatever nasal breathing mm -hmm. setting acutely mm -hmm. would be the word for like right now short term and see what right. the short-term benefits are that's that's easier easy enough to do not not easy to do but easy enough to do any yeah, human subjects right. research is difficult uh but then if you wanted to say well we're gonna follow people for a long period of time and then we're going to see what effect right. this has which is even hard to measure it is and we're going to talk yeah <laughs> yeah so so it's just a different context and there's i i would imagine much less research if any that has really done exactly that yet that's right we we hear those claims that's a hundred percent and i think that's like a big a big part of like the message of this episode is yeah yeah um i don't i mean we would really we would need to see some actual scientific research that actually suggests a causal link between something like mouth breathing and health uh health issues you know we need to see that done like done over time and i don't even know you'd have to assign mouth breathing to someone or assess, you know, your nose breather or mouth breather. But we're actually going to talk today about how even assessing that is actually just not this easy thing. We, we think that maybe someone breathes this way, but you don't, you don't really know. Or, yeah. um, it's hard to know without objective measurements. And so anyway, but like yeah. a study over time, you'd have to somehow identify that and then, and then follow people over right. time. So that, and that's, that's sort of almost not even enough because if you just, if you just identify like you said, it's hard to identify, 
But even if you could and did identify, are you a nose breather or a mouth breather? Mm -hmm. The groups aren't random. You need, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there could be systematic differences between those two groups that are underlying this whole thing. So, so yeah, the, the gold standard study design would be a randomized controlled Mm -hmm. trial where you tape, you like, you know, the kids game where you're like, I've got your nose. You would take people's noses yeah. away. <laughs> no, you would, yes. you would, I don't know. You would give them a nose clip you or plug their nose, plug their yeah. nose, plug their which nose. actually James Nest, James Nestor did in the book breath. And I'm just oh, throwing wow. that in there because yeah, that's a book that we're kind of wanting mm-hmm. to talk about today, but he did that personally to himself, to one person he did. That. N equals one. Yeah. So you'd have to do that yes. to a lot of people at random assignment. So half the people mm-hmm. get the nose plug, half the people get the tape on their mouth. Uh, and then that you'd have to keep them that way for a long time and then right. follow them for an even longer time to see what are the long-term effects of that. 100%. And that's just, that hasn't been done to my knowledge and that probably never will be done. So then you're exactly. going to saying, well, we're going to identify people. There could be problems with that. And then there could be problems even with the identification itself. So the, the, yeah, the point is that so the research is hard there. to do. Yeah, it's hard to do. hasn't been done to our knowledge. And if it's not, if it hasn't been done, then I'm just curious, like where these strong claims are coming from. Right. You know, that like, that, that breathing through your nose is super important for yeah. optimal health. Right. Like, so where, it's not. Has that been tested? Yeah, we can't be sure that it is or it isn't, but we can be sure that we don't know. So anyone that's who's right, that's 100% making the, right. the strong claim that it is better is operating off of evidence that is insufficient to make that strong of a claim. That's precisely right. It's like the research isn't there yet. So we're like reaching ahead of the research, I guess, and making these big yeah. claims. But it sounds um, like if- James Nestor's N equals one <laughs> research was enough for him. Actually, uh, for him, it is enough for him. But that's you can't then extrapolate right. a case study yeah. out to the broader population. Uh, exactly, and I'm sure that our science educator Rachel David will talk about that when we um, when we talk to her about this book. I yeah, pretty mm-hmm. sure she'll bring that up. So anyway, Travis, uh, why don't we? Uh, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time talking about this, but let's touch on what research has suggested about nasal breathing um that's like within a breathing practice and that might be within a yoga practice it might be pranayama or just some other breathing techniques that aren't necessarily within yoga so breathing through the nose it's it's obviously smaller airways than breathing through the mouth so if you want to breathe slowly breathing through the nose is kind of like where it's at you know Mm -hmm. because breathing through the mouth you can just take in a lot more air volume makes sense so from an exercise yes slow breathing yes exactly yeah. So slow breathing um, naturally happens or it's slower when you're breathing through the nose. Like that airway just kind of facilitates slow, a slowing down of the breath. So a lot of the research tends to focus on uh, this breath rate uh, of six breaths per minute being kind of what's qualified or what counts as like slow breathing. And your the typical breath rate of just like a normal healthy human is like 10 to 15 breaths per minute. Mm. So when you slow the breath down to about, about six breaths per minute, that would be considered slow breathing in a lot of this research. And that tends to be this kind of quote, like magic number that seems to be the number of breaths per minute that 
at which like at that rate, that's when there tend to be these advantages that can happen or these positive benefits. And it kind of boils down to like a five second inhale and a five second exhale. Nice round number. And then do that six times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just like slowing down the breath. So what do we know about what like slowing down the breath can do? I mean, I think we all just intuitively know that, uh, that that can calm us down mm -hmm. and it can relax us. And especially if someone's feeling kind of anxious or a little stressed, like if you pause and take some slow breaths, that just has this naturally um, calming totally. effect. Or we might call it like down-regulating is kind of a term you tend to hear. It uh, on a like a physiological level or a nervous system level activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which we know and we've discussed on the podcast before. That's like your rest and digest side of the autonomic nervous system. And mm. then you have your f more fight or flight, which is the sympathetic, which tends to be more associated with was taking in like breathing faster, fight or flight, like sympathetic, taking in more breath so that you have more oxygen available to like uh, power your muscles so that you could fight or uh, or run away, mm. things like that. Yeah. Or That's exercise. Like breathing more quickly is yes, or exercise, exactly which we talked about in a previous episode, like when you exercise, you are upregulating the sympathetic nervous system, but that's a good thing. Right. Um, it's not a bad thing. Like it's really all about kind of um, a balance between the two and just like not being so super dominant in one versus the other, you know, like chronically. Mm -hmm. So breathing practices can be great for activating the parasympathetic nervous system and just kind of a lot of that like calming, uh, down-regulating nature. It, they also seem to like these slow breathing practices. They also seem to enhance like just general well-being. They can also uh, be really good techniques for helping with things like pain, both acute and chronic pain. There's like a good amount of evidence that supports that just like simple slow breathing techniques can have uh, positive benefits for things like pain. So, and um, they're just really good, just kind of hand, hand in hand built into something like a yoga practice. We just have that like slower controlled breath, like built into that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, and another positive benefit from slow breathing techniques is uh, reducing blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So they can be helpful, especially for people who have hypertension or elevated chronically elevated blood pressure, mm -hmm. like a practice of slow breathing, you know, done regularly over time, like as a So practice. would that be like, a, you know. know, you'd be prescribed 10 minutes of slow breathing once mm -hmm. a day or that like that could be part of the prescription? Totally. That could be part of the prescription. Yeah. Like, a, like just sit down yeah, in a, in a seated, seated context, or maybe you could get that out of a yoga practice. Right. So I think that like, we just kind of wanted to lay this out because we it, like, we really want to emphasize that uh, breath work, breath work is another word for it, for like breath practices mm -hmm. and breath techniques can be very valuable uh, for all of these reasons and more. And um, that's like super well established. It's very evidence-based to say that. And um, there, you know, if, if those types of outcomes are important for someone, that is a really good reason to do something like a yoga practice or um, a mindfulness practice that incorporates like breath practice or just any breath practice. Like they're, they're definitely not doing nothing. They can be Score doing a lot. Score one like, for this... uh, the life force. <laughs> so you, you said pranayama, mm -hmm. like another term for that in the English translation, of course, would be like the life force control. 
And it's like, that's right. Wow. That's right. There's some scientific evidence that supports literally that there's, it's not just breath, but there's, there's, there's ties to other health Mm -hmm. improvements and health conditions. That's right. Which just, which makes sense to me because so much is so interconnected in the body, you know, like psychology and physiology and there's just, it's, it's not like so separate. So when, um, when you slow down the breath, that's going to, it's just going to influence you on, on many levels. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me that research actually shows like tangible health uh, improvements from something like a breath practice. So those were just like some of the main bullet points benefits that I wanted to pull out. And there's obviously more and uh, there's a ton of research, like just it's, it's not hard to find like what um, evidence that supports all of that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So that is, that is really good support for our breathing practice within, you know, like a temporary, you're conscious, you're, you're consciously intentionally slowing down the breath. Which is a key um, point, right? And yes, right. Because that's a lot different mm-hmm. than when you're off the yoga mat and you're in your day-to-day life and you're moving around. And then there we have reset to our unconscious breath pattern, which is which is autonomic. It's automatic. It's just controlled by the autonomic ser- uh, nervous system. And um, it's not something, it's thankfully not something that we have to think about or generally. I mean, of course there are actual, you know, respiratory conditions uh, out there, of course, um, COPD, asthma, things like that. Mm-hmm. But we are generally, we're talking about like your, your baseline kind of healthy individual. Um, so anyway, generally for generally healthy people who are moving around through the world and, uh, walking and talking and don't have like a diagnosed respiratory condition, mm-hmm. uh, breathing isn't something that they need to think about. It just happens automatically. And, um, that's a really good thing. Mm. You know, it's, uh, yeah, that'd be a lot to worry <laughs> about nice because do you know how many breaths a day? Well, you just said average? 10 to 15 per minute. So that's right. 10 to 15 times 60 times 24, right? <laughs> Whatever that is, yeah, is a lot I, of breaths. I hear it is 20 to 22,000 a day, something like that mm-hmm. breaths a day, something like that. it's like a very high number. So that if, you know, if we were really going out of our way to consciously control how we breathe day to day on a day to day level. I mean that would we that would um overload us cognitively. Yeah, like I don't know how we'd function. Right. We wouldn't be able to do much else besides counting our breaths or like yeah, deliberately yes. making sure we're inhaling and exhaling. Through the right hole or something like that. Yeah. Like the nose versus the mouth, you know, is one way, one way that you might but there's also so that's just which hole you breathe through, but then there's like um how fast am I breathing? Because mm-hmm. you know, there are claims mm-hmm. that like you should be breathing slowly because mm-hmm. everybody um chronically hyperventilates or overbreathes and that is the root cause of so many health issues that's like buteco breathing method so slowly um, but more shallowly that's right it's not necessarily slow and deep it's slow and shallow that's surprising. is what they advocate it's interesting but i guess it makes sense i know it's a little counterintuitive yeah if they're saying well people are breathing they're overbreathing and they're breathing too deeply because they're breathing through is, is are they also claiming that it's yeah, they're also claiming because it's the people are breathing through their mouth, right? That's right. Okay. Yes, a hundred percent. It's like, um, I mean, basically, if you look like if I look at um my social media feed, I will just inevitably see posts where they're just like where the person who created it is like, You're breathing wrong, just sure. like you, the 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 viewer. Right. And I'm gonna tell you how to breathe right. It's like this assumption it's a baseline assumption that everybody 
is breathing wrong. And that a uh, big part of that is breathing through the mouth. Right. So right? then if everybody's breathing wrong, <laughs> then <laughs> right. I, I wonder. Right. If every, well, do you remember Travis one time you showed me a post or you forwarded it to me where someone said, literally they said 80% of you or us or whatever mm -hmm. are breathing wrong. And they use that term 80%. Do you remember that? I don't know if you're, but I, you sent that to me and I was just like, oh, <laughs> I find that so frustrating because um, it's a, it's an assumption, first of all. Mm -hmm. It's an assumption that you know how everybody's breathing. And it's also an assumption that you know what's the right way to breathe. Right. But also, um, you know, we just established some facts about breathing and the positive benefits it can have, like within a breathing practice context uh, or breathing through the nose, I should say, or, and slow. Um, Slow, slowing down the breath. But um, if we also want to talk about like facts uh, with nasal breathing versus oral breathing, uh, the research is pretty clear that, you know, that 80% number that that social media post said 80% of us are breathing wrong. Um, the research is clear that 80% of people breathe 100% through their nose. What the heck? 80 percent well, it's of people, not as, it's not as shocking and we wouldn't be talking about it if i wouldn't have sent you the post if it was like well 20 percent of you are doing it wrong it's like well that <laughs> probably wouldn't have even exactly. shown up on my feed because it's not as shocking so it's so first of shocking. all for, like you said it's like well you're telling me that one way is right and one way is wrong second of all you've you've um you have the numbers switched because it's only 20 percent of you are doing right. it wrong according to what i deem right and wrong Exactly. Oh, you know what? I think I do remember this post in question now, which we will also not, not link in the show notes. That's right. Well, it was one of just a sea of posts like this, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that eight, it's almost like the 80% figure just like, I don't know, it stands out or something, but then we want to flip it and be like, oh, it's actually 80% of people breathe wrong. Oh, that's But funny. actually, 80% of people breathe with their mouths, their lips fully seals, and they breathe 100% through the nose. Wow. 80%. I know. I think it's really cool to know that. And uh, it's also cool to know that uh, nasal breathing is reflexive. It's like the, I guess you could say natural. It's the natural way that the human body wants to breathe. Mm -hmm. So this is all kind of, you know, like points for nasal breathing, basically. Like nasal breathing is a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. This is the thing you always hear anywhere that you read about nasal breathing. Everybody says these three things. They say nasal breathing will warm, humidify, and filter the air. Mm. Like as you breathe in through your nose, it should warm, filter, and humidify the air. Right. I always see that trifecta of the three things. Um, Versus and if that you don't get that as right. You don't get that. Yeah, you don't get that as much through the mouth. So it won't right. warm it because it doesn't have to go through it. the same passageway and then humidify. That's right. And then what was the third thing? Oh, filtration. Um, fil so the filters, filtration, yeah. I guess, is coming through like your nose hairs or whatever else. Like, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think also on a microscopic level, um, I'm actually, just because we're talking about the filtration, I just want to jump to, um, in my notes here, there's this really cool study from... 1952. Oh, wow. It's from 71 years ago. And it's a really long time ago. If um, you were born in 1952, you would be like a senior citizen today. But the reason that I think the study is really cool is because, uh, well, many reasons. But one is that 
already back then, already in 1952, uh, these claims about mouth breathing being so bad for us were already being questioned. And this study was questioning them. It was like, like this review is set out to separate um, facts from conjecture, like about the, uh, the, the poor health effects of mouth breathing and that like nasal breathing is so much better. But anyway, um, I pulled this quote because I think it's really funny. So in this in this study, what they write about nasal breathing is they say, when the air first enters the nose, the coarse hairs just inside the anterior nares, and a nares is, is a nostril, mm. uh, pre prevent the entrance of gross particulate matter, such as leaves, twigs, or insects. Mm. And I just think it's really funny to think of inhaling like leaves or twigs. Well, wait, but bugs, or don't people? I've heard that you inhale like one bug a year. And you don't even know it or more. For sure. Yeah, I think like when, when you're talking or something, yeah. you know, if you're outside and you're about just like a, like a little gnat goes in or whatever. But I just thought it was really funny that in 1952, they were like, the nose will filter you, filter the the branches and the and the um, leaves out of your, yeah. out of your nose. I hadn't been worried about that before, but maybe I should <laughs> be now. Exactly, exactly. So that when you breathe through your nose, you will warm, humidify and filter the air mm -hmm. like you will like that. And that's a part of the reason why nasal breathing is reflexive and why 80% of people 100% breathe through their nose. Yeah, so that's good stuff. Because if that stuff's not happening, and you're breathing through your mouth, then you have to do something extra. Like, 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 let's say for the, the warming standpoint, well, you want there to be warm. So there must, maybe there's increased blood circulation. Probably increased blood. Uh, yeah. In a different part of the tract, like down in the lungs or something. Yeah. So you're like having to do extra work that you wouldn't yeah. necessarily have to have done before. Yeah. So it may be less efficient in terms of the warm, the warming mm -hmm. if you breathe through your, through your mouth. Um, and there's this other thing about nasal breathing that I, I see talked about a lot. And this is actually big in the book Breath and also the book The Oxygen Advantage, also in Buteco, um, is something called a nitric oxide. Um, Travis, have you heard of nitric oxide? Like the chemical? It's a chemical, yeah. Or, or I guess nitric oxide in connection to something like nasal breathing. I bet you haven't because you haven't really looked into this too much. But basically... Nitric oxide is, is a gas mm -hmm. uh, that is produced in our sinuses and our nasal airways. And it's, uh, it's something that's only produced through the nasal passageways and not through the oral passageways. Mm. And um, nitric oxide is a vasodilator, which means it dilates your blood vessels. So it can help with something like uh, absorbing oxygen. Like especially at the area of the lungs. So nitric oxide is, is good for that. It also has antimicrobial qualities. So it could be helpful for like preventing um, infections, you know, or fighting like something that you inhale that might be infectious. Like a leaf. And yeah, like, or a twig. <laughs> exactly. So this is true and this is real that we have nitric oxide produced in the nasal passageways and it's mm. not produced in the oral passageways. And this is... Um, this I hear claimed a lot for why it's really important that we all close our mouths and breathe through the nose mm -hmm. because, because the nitric oxide. And while for sure, it seems like that is, you know, that that's helpful. Uh, I'm just, I wonder, I wonder. And as far as I know, research has not been done on this. Um, but I wonder if, if you breathe through your mouth, um, 
just like, okay, well, actually, let me just, let me move on to my next point, which is going to be related to what we were just saying. Basically, uh, we tend to think, you know, how easy as we've talked about it is to think about black things in black and white terms, Mm -hmm. um, good, bad. We also tend to think in a black and white term as far as nose versus mouth breathing. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think that like, I'm either breathing through my nose or I'm breathing through my mouth, like it's black or white, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. one is on, one is off. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I feel like that's a huge assumption people don't even think about when they hear, you know, these claims, yeah. but actually, if your mouth is open, you are still breathing through your nose. Right. Like if your mouth is open and if your mouth is open and, and if you're breathing through your mouth, you're still breathing through your nose. And uh, that's just like known physiologically, mm-hmm. like there's... There's no, but nobody says that when they talk about how important it is to breathe through the nose, but it's called oronasal breathing. Mm -hmm. So you have oral, which is your mouth, you have nasal, and then you have oronasal. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, unless your nasal passages are occluded Mm -hmm. or or obstructed, like if you have, you're stuffed up, you have allergies, unless they're occluded, even if you're breathing through your mouth, you're also breathing through your nose. Like you just, you just are. So my question is, yes, the nitric oxide, you know, you do create that. You also create that in your blood vessels and in other parts of your body. But with regard to respiration, it is in the nasal passages only. But even if you're breathing through your mouth, you're also still breathing through your nose. Uh, So, you know, do you still get the nitric oxide? Do you still get enough? Like how much do you need? Like what's the percentage? You know, it's just like, these are questions that I I don't believe research has been done on. So I don't know if you remember, Travis, our episode a few episodes back when we talked to Claire Zai about the menstrual cycle um, and how that how that may or may not affect women and strength training. Mm-hmm. And she I just feel like this is a really good example to bring up because she showed us or, or explained that in research, research does reveal that like in this kind of isolated manner, the different phases of your menstrual cycle can affect something like strength. Like if you take one single finger and you push it down like into mm. a table, yeah, it may be a little weaker on one in one phase versus the other. So then people see this like isolated thing and then they're like, therefore, <laughs> you know, when you're strength training in this phase of your menstrual cycle, you are going to be weaker and you need to be careful in all of this. Mm-hmm. But actually when research actually looked at, in practice, actual strength training, which is a lot more than just isolated little muscle. It's everything involves your whole body and compound movements that then there were no differences, you know? So it's like, it's so easy to see something in isolation and then want to extrapolate and jump to conclusions. And I just wonder if this nitric oxide claim or fear or whatever is like, yes, it's in your nasal cavities, but um, if your mouth is open and you happen to be oronasal breathing, does that mean that you're somehow like depriving yourself of the amount of nitric oxide that you need. Right. Uh, like, do we even know that? Like, cause that's different than just saying, yeah, there's nitric oxide in the, na-. that's the isolation, but then we're talking whole body breathing. Mm. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So, so it could still be going on because you're also breathing through your nose when you're breathing through your mouth and other, the nitrous oxide is produced in. Ni- I've just nit- it's sorry, nitric oxide. That's a different it, yeah. chemical gas compounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's produced in other parts of your body. So maybe yeah. it can be made up. Like maybe it. you're getting enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, we don't know. I think that's the point is like, we don't know. So um, it's one thing to know that the nitric oxide is produced in the pathways, but it's another to make the jump to, therefore, if you don't breathe through your nose, you know, all these right. all these health problems are going to happen. Like we just don't know. We, we don't know. Ni- so nitrous so, oxide is laughing gas that they give you at the that's dentist right. office for yeah. a tooth extraction. Different. Very yeah, different. Yeah. 
Uh, right, but, yeah. but nitric oxide is this vasodilator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so, definitely hear what you're saying in terms of like, that's something that we should question. And it's, but like you said, if you're, if you're fully occluded, like you've got a cold, your allergies are bad, then that's a different scenario because then you're, yeah. you're not, what did you say? Oro, the process of breathing. Oro nasally. Yeah, oro nasally. Yeah. You're not oro nasally breathing if you're fully 100% occluded. Right, right. So Travis, chuck this out. Uh, you know, we already established that research lets us know that 80% of people breathe 100% nasally. So mm -hmm. yeah, we know that. Now, uh, I found this stat on the Wikipedia entry for mouth breathing. And when I went back to its source, it was like sourced to a textbook and I couldn't really get the actual textbook. So I don't, I don't have an actual research study for this, whereas I do with like everything else that I've said, but this is linked back to a textbook. Mm -hmm. But in the Wikipedia entry, they wrote that, yes, 80% of people breathe 100% nasally. And of the 20% of people who are not breathing 100% nas nasally, 85% mm -hmm. don't because of a nasal obstruction like allergies or congestion. So this is getting gotcha. a little tricky with the numbers and the percentages here. <laughs> Gotta but... bust out my calculator. Exactly. But of the 20% of like our population who doesn't already 100% breathe nasally, then 85% of them are just not breathing 100% nasally because maybe they're congested or something, right? Something's blocking their nose. And then the presumption would be once that clears up, they resume their nasal breathing again. So, mm -hmm. so just to be a little uh, getting into those statistics. So out of that, so that's 85% of the 20%. Like they're mm -hmm. gonna they're gonna default back to nasal once they decongest. So that leaves you can help me make sure I'm doing this math right. But that <laughs> leaves uh, that should leave us three people out of every yeah. hundred who um, are who are not breathing 100% nasally, like for some other reason. Does that yeah, did I that, does that sound right? That checks out. So 85% of 20 is 17, leaving yes. three a remainder who are not going to presumably clear up in the somewhat near future because their issue is temporarily related to sinus or nose congestion yes. or whatever. So their issue That's is some right. other reason and whatever that reason is, maybe they would clear up at some point or maybe they wouldn't. And then they need to figure out why that is. Right. Or, or those 3%, they might not even be three people in their nose. Oh yes. Yeah, well, oh yeah. Three, no, three people and 3%. Three. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. But not, it's um... three people out of a hundred that the point is they're not breathing 100% nasally, not because their nose is congested. So it's just some other reason, basically. Um, yeah. And that would be like, maybe if you were going to say uh, that nasal breathing is is the best and mouth breathing is the worst, then maybe that's like applied to maybe that 3% of people, right? Not, and we're kind of lot. questioning whether that's how, you know, like we can, whether we can really say that, but, um, but it's 3% of people that that are not already you know 100 breathing nasally or wouldn't be if they presumably wouldn't be if they weren't right so that's a pretty small minority of the population as opposed to everybody's breathing wrong eggs and that exactly and that's like the main point of why we're why we're kind of bringing that up right it's just a far cry from you just like the general you <laughs> you on instagram yeah exactly are breathing wrong it's like actually three out of every 100 of you are maybe mm -hmm. only maybe but yeah so does that make sense yeah okay cool 
I think the idea is um, in, built into these claims is that we're breathing poorly, we're breathing wrong, like everybody, you know, like chronically the population is. Um, but in actuality, nasal breathing is, is reflexive and pretty much everybody nasally breathes. Uh, a small minority of people, um, you know, might breathe in combination with like nose and mouth. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just not the huge claims that we tend to yeah. hear that are just like, Everybody's you're breathing, breathing wrong. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you can probably tell that Travis and I are on a mission to bring more scientific literacy to our yoga and movement community so that we can all take a more evidence-based approach to our yoga and movement practices and to the everyday decisions that we all make in our lives in general. If you've been appreciating the work we put into this podcast to help uplift and empower our community with better information, science-based thinking, and solid education about the body and movement, consider becoming a supporter of our show to help our message grow even further. You can support our work with this podcast starting at just $3 a month, and you can cancel anytime, of course. The link to become a supporter is in the show notes. Just look for the text, become a supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We truly appreciate your support for the work that we do with this podcast and the educational resource that it is for our yoga community. And now back to our episode. It's just, it's just not the huge claims that we tend to yeah. hear that are just like, Everybody's you're breathing, breathing wrong. Yeah, it's like a small minority of people who don't breathe, um, yeah. you know, 100% through their nose. Which lends to the notion that most of us probably don't have to worry about this. Yes, exactly, Travis. That was kind of one of the big takeaways is like, you probably don't, yeah. probably don't have to worry about this. There might be 5% yeah. of people who... And and even then, I just don't know, like, um, like, how are we assessing mouth breathing or determining that someone is? So... We also know from research that just because someone's like mouth is open, it um, as we've already established, we know they're they're still breathing through their nose unless their nose is occluded. Mm -hmm. But people can have their lips open or their mouth open, and they still can be one hundred percent breathing through their nose. Like we just don't you don't know just by looking at the mouth opening. Oh wow! Yeah. And Makes there sense. was this great study that was done. Uh, that was called nose mouth distribution of respiratory airflow in quote mouth breathing children, quote mouth breathing children. So uh, these respiratory doctors, or maybe they were, they were ENT uh, doctors, ear, nose, throat. They did the study where they took 120 children who had been clinically diagnosed as mouth breathers. So they had been clinically diagnosed as mouth breathers. But these researchers, uh, they're, they're like kind of concerned about the way that mouth breathing tends to be clinically diagnosed because it's generally based on like subjective analyses. It's based on, um, you know, you just kind of maybe look at the person, you could ask some questions, you might do something called rhinomanometry, which is measuring like airflow pressure, like in the nasal, it, me it measures nasal airflow pressure. So um, they just kind of go go based on those things. And then they determine whether they diagnose that person as a mouth breather or not. But what these researchers are suggesting is that like these typical modes of, of diagnosing mouth breathing are actually all subjective. 
and they're not objectively actually measuring actual airflow mm. and the ratio between nasal and oral. So they took these 120 kids who had all been, they'd all been diagnosed as mouth breathers. Mm -hmm. And they actually objectively assessed their airflow between mouth versus nose. And they found that their objective measurements did not correlate with the clinical diagnoses. Ooh. And uh, uh -oh. they were like, yeah, and they have this technique that they recommend where they put like the person in, it's called a plethysmograph. It's like this almost whole body container, but their head is out and it's measuring volume change in the body. So it can measure the volume change of the lungs. Mm -hmm. And that's how they would assess like total airflow in and out. And then at the same time, they have, um, they put a CPAP mask on the nose. So they put an, a mask on the, on the subject's nose, and then they're measuring just the nasal portion of the breath. Oh. So they're able to simultaneously get how much nasal portion yeah. compared to a total. And that's then that's genius. how they get the ratio. I know. And they're like, this is the way that you objectively measure not just from airflow, but nobody's doing this. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's hard. A I don't can't even pronounce a plethysmograph, let alone plethysmograph, you know what yes. it is or know how to set it up. So yeah, you're saying they're whatever their clinical way of diagnosing this is probably just from looking at them and talking to them and asking them questions. They're yeah. identifying 120 nose, uh, mouth breather, breathers. Mouth breathing and, kids. Yeah. And then that study that actually me truly measured mouth breathing didn't really show the same thing. No, it didn't correlate at all. And they found that like the amount that the lips were apart also didn't correlate with the amount that they wow. nasal breathed. So, right. Some kids had. If that's your, yeah. if you're so, saying, well, if your mouth is open, you must be, must be mouth breathing. That's not the case at all. Exactly. That's but that's proxy. the thing. It's a hundred percent not a good proxy, and like, um, yeah, some of the kids had really wide open lips, and they breathed a hundred percent through the nose, and other kids had a lot closer together lips, and they breathed less through the nose. Mm -hmm. So it's just like you can't tell, and I think that we just want to look at people. You know, it's um, it, it's also a cultural stereotype we have about like the mouth breather. <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of that stereotype, right? Like they're louder. Or... Oh, you don't know about the stereotype. <laughs> What's the stereotype? It's usually that they're less that they're less intelligent. It's like but it's I... a pe mouth breather is a pejorative term. But it didn't, it's like kind of you know. Isn't there some research that has shown children who mouth breathe are like poorer performers academically, or does that is that problematic because of the way that we we have difficulty measuring mouth breathing? There, so there is some research. Yes, there is some research that has shown a correlation between mouth breathers, mouth breathing children, and cognitive um, performance. Yeah, which isn't causation. Uh, that's right. It's not causation. It's correlation. So there are two big problems with that research. And one is, I actually looked at some of these studies, and I was curious, like, well, how did they actually assess whether the kids were mm -hmm. mouth breathing? And they didn't do the objective airflow. Mm -mm. They just did this. They just did subjective measurements. So they probably, I don't know, they just, the kid had an open mouth and they're like, you're a mouth breather. Right. You know? So it's actually not mouth breathing is correlated with academic performance or poor academic performance. It's mouth, how much your mouth is open, which actually doesn't have anything to do with mouth breathing. <laughs> you're right. Like if, you're totally right, Travis. Like that's what those studies would show. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I mean, because they, they were not measuring objective airflow. And like that, you really need to quantitatively assess that to determine how someone is breathing. So that's the first big problem with like with that research, which is like a, a smallish body of research that has tended to show this. And I, I would just suggest 
in general, um, I think that a lot of the research that is done on this is partly motivated by the bias in our society that mouth, breath mouth breathers are, you know, somehow less than or um, less intelligent. Like we, and it's like kind of an insult to call someone a mouth breather. I think we just have this cultural idea that mouth breathing is bad. So we're going to go out of our way to look for ways in which it must be bad. Mm -hmm. But our friend and friend of the podcast, Greg Knuckles, he, uh, we actually heard him on his podcast talking about this exact topic, mm -hmm. which helped kind of like inspire us for things that we were thinking about for our episode. And he talked about this specifically and the research done on the kids and their cognitive, cognitive abilities. He didn't talk about the problems with even assessing mouth breathing. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he's aware of that. But what he talked about was, um, first of all, it's only correlation. So you could certainly look at that. And if you have a bias that mouth breathing is bad, you could be like, okay, that supports my bias. Like mouth breathing made them less intelligent yeah. or whatever, impaired cognitive ability. Mm -hmm. However, we know, as we've already talked about in this episode, uh, we've got like the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And you have like stress is more associated with the sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight. And when you're more stressed, you're more likely to maybe breathe more through your mouth uh, you know, in order to like fuel the body with more oxygen. So what Greg Knuckles was proposing was that the actual connection between those phenomena in that research, if it's even a connection, it's probably reverse causation where these kids may have been uh, performing poor academically, but they were also stressed. And it may just be the fact that like they were stressed, which was causing the poor academic performance and potentially causing what the researchers seem to perceive as mouth breathing. Yeah. So does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So it, it, the stress could precede the poor performance or it could come as a result of the poor performance. And like you said, it could be reverse causation where instead of the mouth breathing causing the poor performance, it's the poor performance is causing the mouth breathing by way of increasing stress or it, the the mouth breathing it could be this third or lurking variable where it's just, yeah, they're mouth breathing, but the the poor academic performance is really just due to their stress. Anyway, the point being that they didn't measure any of those things and they didn't assess them. They didn't do, they were, it was just a correlation cross-sectional observational study, no experimental manipulation of groups. And so you can't, prove causation from that type of study design. 100%. I think you put that so perfectly. Yes. And um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that connection between potentially if you were a poor performer academically, that could make you stress. Right. So you don't know which where... could then maybe like, yeah, I didn't measure stress at all. Way, right. But, yeah. but the, the stress could have come before or after. And then yeah, like as a result of, yeah, it's just so many factors going on there. But like, as a society, we think of mouth breathing, um, like I said, it's like a pejorative term. We have a societal bias that it's a bad thing. So I just think that's part of what's going on with all of this is that we just want to think that mouth breathing is is bad. Um, and so I think that can that can fuel our opinions, our how quickly we are to to believe these claims, and maybe fuel some of the research. You know, I, I think especially a lot of the research on kids because there there's a lot of um, a lot of claims about mouth breathing kids and like how when kids mouth breathe, it changes the face of the shape or it creates, too, yeah. um, 
teeth malocclusion, like like um, crooked teeth, things like that. That mouth breathing causes that. But even back in 1952, that really cool study I was talking about that was talking about inhaling the twigs. Um, they were also they were also questioning all of that, and they were just like that it could easily be that like genetics predispose them to a certain facial shape, um, and also they were speculating like certain skull uh, shapes may just predispose someone to like breathe more through their mouth, like it just could. And they were just like there have been no experimental studies that have actually looked at this. It's just um, if anything, it's just correlation, but we can't make causal claims. And that was back in 1952, you know? So it's just like, it's been so long since then. And all I've seen in more modern research, looking at that connection between mouth breathing and skull shape, they don't even see a correlation. In fact, that study of the 120 kids, the quote mouth breathers, they also analyzed that. They tried to connect like how they breathe, whether, you know, what percentage through the nose and the mouth, connecting that to their face shape. And there was no no connection on which you could make predictions of what their face shape looked like. So yeah, so that seems to be also very questionable. And again, could just be kind of being rooted from bias. Right. Anyway, Travis, uh, there's something else pretty important that we want to get to in this conversation. Um, before we bring in Dr. Rachel David to talk about the book, uh, Breath by James Nestor. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if we could hop, it's all still related, but it's just shifting our conversation a bit. I think we've kind of laid out some good arguments for why, why maybe some of these claims that we hear about nasal breathing can be a little, um, a little bold, especially based on what actual research and evidence we have for that. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like, yes, we we already, like almost everybody already breathes reflexively through the nose. This is not a problem that we need to tell everybody that they need to do. Mm -hmm. But even for people who don't breathe through their nose, even people who maybe breathe 100% through their mouth, which is rare, I don't even think we have the research to, that shows a connect, a causal connection between mouth breathing and all these health problems. Like if if research on that is done, like show it to us or do it and then maybe then we can maybe start to justify those big claims we hear. Right. But I think until then, we probably need to be tentative, right? In like what we're claiming. Mm -hmm. Do That's kind of the overarching summary, right? Of what we're talking about. For sure. Uh, what we presented here. Okay. So let's, let's bring all of that to then looking at the Buteyko method and the two books. These are, this is what also we wanted to focus on today. So the Buteyko breathing method is uh, it's this, and I know Travis, you hadn't heard of Buteyko. Mm -mm. So I get to tell you about it too. I've heard a lot about it because in some circles in the yoga world, it's pretty popular. Uh, and also in general, just in like the wellness, holistic healing, natural healing worlds in general, Buteyko tends to be, tends to have a presence. Um, and it's basically, it's breath techniques, like breathing techniques and like a, trying to retrain your day-to-day -day breath so that you breathe 100% nasally, even though almost all of us already do that, but whatever. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to retrain your breath so that you breathe 100% nasally, and you're supposed to take shallower, like take in less air. And that's because everybody is supposed to be, we, we you know, are supposed to be a widespread chronic population of quote, over breathers or chronic hyperventilators. These are the claims. I've looked into the research on this and these claims about uh, chronic hyperventilation uh, leading to the 150 uh, health issues or diseases that Buteyko claims it leads to, and that Buteyko also claims that Buteyko breathing will cure. 
there's no support. There's no support in the evidence for that. And the, the whole theory behind that, like, first of all, the idea that we all overbreathe. I mean, we, I, I don't know if there's evidence for that, but then the idea that chronically overbreathing is chronic hyperventilation and that leads to lower carbon dioxide levels. And that that is then at this metabolic level, that's what then contributes to all of these diseases. That's their theory, basically. Totally. And that's why they want to retrain. Of, Does that make sense? Of, that's the theory. A lot of steps to extrapolate. One, thank you, Travis. That's 100%. Uh, chronic diseases or diseases? Yeah. And guess what? Guess which disease? I mean, I, I, I can send you links to all of the diseases they claim, but they claim that our bad breathing mm -hmm. causes or contributes to up to 150 diseases, including COVID, diabetes, high blood pressure, hemorrhoids, impotency, sterility, HIV, and AIDS, and over 140 more, well, all caused by the fact that I'm we I'm not that kind of doctor, but my understanding <laughs> is that the way that you contract those diseases requires something pretty different in many cases from whatever overbreathing yes. means. Right, 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 right. So the whole theory behind the system was debunked like back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I was even reading research where researchers were like suggesting that we don't even use the term hy hyperventilation syndrome, like that goes away as a diagnosis, like it's not a mm -hmm. thing. I don't know. But um, anyway, Buteka breathing was started in the 1950s by a physiologist named Konstantin Buteko in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it was later, it was like, um, it was later that it started to be, to spread, uh, wide, more widespread. But uh, the deal is, here's the, here's the origin story of Buteko. And this should remind you of like our last episode, which was on complementary and alternative medicines. I was going to say, well, just when you mentioned wellness, yeah. it's like, well, we, we, we pretty thoroughly discussed that in our last, was it the last episode? It was the yeah. last, Yeah. And something that Jonathan Jerry, our science communicator guest, pointed out was that uh, with a lot of alternative medicine modalities, they were started by like this lone wolf or like this one person, usually a man, yeah. who had this one realization one day, and then they're like, this is the way everything works. And then they it start fits. their system. Yeah, exactly. So that's what happened here. So Buteko, um, he was in World War II and came back and, and then he started, he was a physiologist. So he um, had major health issues, and this was like in his 20s. He had really high blood pressure, hypertension, and I think he was diagnosed, the story is a little vague, but he was diagnosed as not having very much longer to live because of his hypertension. Mm. So his story is that one night he walked out and he saw a bright light, and then uh, he was kind of like thinking that this was going to be the end, like this, oh. like he was just in real health trouble. And he noticed his breathing and his breathing was super rapid and like fast paced. And then he had this like stroke of genius in the moment that like my fast paced breathing is not the result of my health condition. It's the cause of my health condition. And so then he in that moment started slowing down his breath and he felt better. And then he was like, wait, we're all breathing fast. And that's what's causing all these things. And then he tried it out on a few other people. He tried to get them to slow their breathing and they felt better. And then he was like, this is the Buteco method. And he established his method. I don't even know so, what to say to that. <laughs> well, one thing that's cool to say is um, science-based medicine is a great 
organization and website. And they do a really good job of taking a really science-based look at so many of these claims. There are a couple articles they have on Buteyko method. And I just, if it's okay with you, I just want to read you um, this one from, from this one science-based medicine article. So they relayed that story that I just relayed to you about Buteyko mm -hmm. having this insight. Mm -hmm. So they write, it might be that he stumbled in this moment onto an immensely powerful and hitherto unknown insight into human pathophysiology. <laughs> On the other hand, there may be a more simple question, uh, more simple explanation. We have in Buteyko, a young man recently returned from the battle lines of World War II, suffering from hypertension, which is extremely uncommon in a young man who is experiencing hyperventilation, flashing lights, and an apparent feeling of impending doom. One would be hard pressed to find a better setup for and description of a panic attack. Slow controlled breathing that Boteco described using can not only resolve the acute symptoms of a panic attack, but can also return a sense of control to the person afflicted, reducing their anxiety and potentially alleviating hypertension. Panic attack or stroke of stunning inspiration, Occam's razor might have something to say on the matter. So I think that's a really interesting theory. Who knows? But from the description, it sounds like, you know, maybe he had a PTSD post being in the war and yeah. was prone to panic attacks. And maybe he found that slowing down his breath in the face of that panic attack was helpful. I'm sure it was. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't then mean that there's this like rational then leap to just therefore we're all over breathing and it's causing all these problems. Right. So yeah. a couple more things. Yes. Okay. A couple more things about the Bateka method. I'm going to be brief. I mentioned earlier that uh, there are two books, The Oxygen Advantage and There's Breath. Mm -hmm. So it turns out The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McKeown came out in 2015, and that was pretty big uh, and popular. And that very much advocated nasal breathing as the optimal way and the, and the cure for like so many of our problems. It turns out that Patrick McKeown, who wrote that book, is the head of Buteyko. He took over the Buteyko organization once Buteyko himself died, uh, early 2000s. So just to read. Sorry, I forget the exact. Yes. And I think in the book, he probably talks, he does talk about, I don't think he's pretending that he's not, okay. you know, but he, it's clearly the book isn't called Buteyko's breathing method. It's called mm -hmm. the oxygen advantage. So it's kind of more, I didn't realize when I first heard of that book, that it was Buteyko, mm -hmm. but it is basically. Cool. So Patrick McKeown is the new head of Buteyko. He's the director of education and training at Buteyko Clinic International, and he's the president of Buteyko Professionals International. And he's James Nestor's uncle. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll see there's a connection. Oh, there's gosh. a James Nestor's book. James Nestor, um, his book is, it's like Buteyko rebranded also with maybe a little bit added on that James Nestor has like come upon in his thinking process, but he interviewed Patrick McCune in his book. Patrick McCune endorsed the Breath book. And, um, and also in the book Breath, which I've read through, he does a whole profile on Constantin Buteyko and tells the story and just the whole thing, like in a very, you know, upholding way, like this is- Not as skeptically problem, as so. you told the story. <laughs> exactly much more reverent yeah so uh you had an epiphany you... where god shone the light <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty much like that he didn't use those exact words but he's basically not critical yeah. um he is not critical of Boteco, uh james nestor so the book though the oxygen advantage that came out by patrick McKeown, i just want you to know that the person who wrote the foreword to that book and who's also closely aligned with patrick McKeown, there's like a profile of him on the Buteyko Clinic website, 
His name is, and I don't know if you've heard of this person before, Dr. Joseph Mercola. <laughs> do you know, do you know, know are you laughing because you know exactly who that is? That is yeah. <laughs> he wrote the foreword to the book, The Oxygen Advantage. Just, who is, just I have bullet points about now. who he is, but, but who is Joseph Mercola? Uh, he's just some pseudoscience, but he's very famous. He's famous. He's an um, outspoken anti-vaxxer. Right. He was, um, this is according to the Wikipedia page on Joseph Mercola. It says that, it says that researchers have identified him as the quote, chief spreader of coronavirus misinformation online. And he was banned from YouTube on September 29th, 2021, Joseph Mercola. Oh, wow. So he's outspoken anti-vax or misinformation spreader. Like you said, pseudoscience, um, like selling pseudoscience. He's the, banned from he's YouTube. the kingpin. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a big figure in the alternative medicine world. Yeah. So I just think like, yeah, the fact that he wrote the foreword to the oxygen advantage and also um, Dr. Oz has his quote, his endorsement quote is on the cover. I was going to say Dr. Oz has to be involved in this somewhere. They're right. All You're so chipped right. off the same block. He is. So, so basically just kind of presenting, like, I just want to put these things in perspective. You know, it's one thing in a yoga context to maybe learn about butego breathing and slowing down the breath and you need to stop breathing so much. You, these are what the things that they say. Um, uh, but then when you really take a step back and look into these things and you see, I don't what part, like where, where this is rooted, it's like very much rooted in like the natural medicine, um, side of things, you know, slightly, you know, um, resentful or suspicious of conventional medicine. And a lot of the things we talked about in our last, in our last podcast episode. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just not the Buteco method. So let's just say this too. They claim to treat 150 diseases. Buteco practitioners claim to treat 150, up to 150 diseases. Um, but research, uh, a handful of studies have been done on one disease and its relationship with Buteco. So research does suggest that Buteco breathing techniques can help with the perceived symptoms of asthma. Okay. It doesn't treat asthma, it doesn't treat it sure. uh, like pulmonary measurements, you know, objective measurements of pulmonary function. Mm -hmm. Those don't change after Buteyko. Okay. But people's perception of their symptoms does, can improve through Buteyko. And that can actually result in them feeling less dependent on like using their inhaler. Super. So that's supported. And that's like the one claim that it seems that Buteyko breathing may help with and that's actually uh, supported by a few studies it makes sense to me kind of based on what we were talking about with like the panic attack thing and you know when people have an asthma attack uh it can be very stressful mm -hmm. and it can be worrisome and if you can teach yourself like slower breathing that can give you a sense that you have more control uh in the moment and that can calm someone down and that can certainly help and this is what's been speculated in the research as to why it's not that Buteyko helps because it um, changes, uh, carbon dioxide levels and things like that. Like that's like the, what's being claimed, but it's not those mechanisms. It's just that people are like maybe having more of a sense of control makes sense. using their breath. In a, yeah. And that makes sense. Right. And that may not be unique to Buteyko breathing techniques. That could be yeah. a handful of other breathing techniques where people practice slow breathing that can make them feel better in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Um, right. So, yes. Yeah, so so research does show, but of course, of course that gets then, you know, like kind of 
held up as maybe meaning more, being about more than right. it actually is. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah. not not to say that this is total garbage and it doesn't do anything yes. and you should not no, do no, it. No, no, no. Because there actually is some evidence with the caveat that the, the explanation that Boteco gives and the actual scientific explanation may be different. Um, yeah. And, but then also not to take that and say, well, it worked for asthma, so it works for the other 149 diseases that haven't been studied, but they claim to that it's beneficial exactly. for. That's a great way of putting it. So, yeah, I think you totally get like what, yeah, what, um, what I've discovered upon looking into the Bateco method, the books, this whole topic of nasal versus oral breathing and and all of the like ideas about good versus bad. I think, yeah, we are not here to say that nasal breathing is bad. You know, nasal breathing is good. But does that necessarily mean that mouth breathing is bad? Do we have research to support that? Um, if it's true that nasal breathing is more optimal, and of course, you know, it seems like there's some, it seems like that could make sense. Um, like how much, like what's the actual effects? Like what's the, I think they would say like the magnitude of the effect, right. you know? Right, yep, If definitely. someone actually... Like maybe it, maybe it's statistically significant that nasal breathing is more optimal, but how much more optimal are we talking about? We have a mouth for a reason. We have the ability to breathe through the mouth. For yeah, a that's reason. your backup, right? Like if your yeah. nose gets clogged, and then you didn't have a good mouth, thing, you have your mouth. Good thing, yeah. <laughs> right. So I just wonder about, and I don't think we even have research. We don't. We don't have research to even show that. But it's like, how big is the effect? And are there so many other things in our life where, yeah, there's something that you might do that might help a little with your optimal health, you know, uh, but do we go around yelling at everybody like you need to do this thing? Mm. And maybe it's just like, a, there's so many things we might know could could improve our health, but we ignore. We're just like, yeah, I don't want to do that. You know, like maybe this is like that. Right. I don't know. Research doesn't, doesn't know. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm? Yeah. Like there are probably bigger fish to fry. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we just don't know, but there are we don't know because we don't know what the magnitude of the effect is for mouth breathing versus nose breathing but we could we could imagine that there are probably bigger fish to fry i think that's exactly From a, yes like are we oh made... you're trying to improve your health standpoint well yes. you could do a lot of other things besides uh, that are actually hyper focusing super... yeah that are you know more supported from a research standpoint to be beneficial than worrying about whether you're breathing through your nose or breathing through your mouth. That's exactly right, Travis. Yes. At least that's how, that's what I, after thoroughly looking into this, that's kind of my, my conclusion as well for now. I mean, if more research comes out, sure. then of course it's all pending on, you know, what's, what comes out in the research, we'll, but we just, we'll do I don't think there's anything to support. In the future. Yeah, Once exactly. Once we know more. So totally. So with all of that said, uh, let's turn our attention now to our special guest. And this, this is uh, Dr. Rachel David. She is here to talk to us specifically about the book Breath by James Nestor. And this is because this book is super popular in the yoga world. And um, these days, because it came out in 2020, so it's pretty new. Mm -hmm. Generally, oh, oh, the majority of the times that I hear people advocate nasal breathing, you know, you should breathe through your nose. You should tell your yoga students they need to breathe through your nose. It's because of this book. They're like, just read Breath by James Nestor. It, it lays out all the science. That's like, yeah, that's what they all, almost always say in my experience. So uh, we wanted Rachel as a science educator to talk to us about this book, largely just again for our scientifically thinking minds. Like, how do we analyze a book and tell whether it's actually science-based or not? 
um, just because people say a book is science-based, like, is it? And I think that's what we're hoping that Rachel can kind of tell us using this specific example of this book. So yeah, so with that said, let's bring on Dr. Rachel David. Yay, so we are super excited now to bring in Dr. Rachel David. And we're also super excited to introduce you to Rachel and to her work. If you're not familiar with it, Travis and I are big fans of um, what she's putting, been putting out there for the yoga community. But Rachel is a yoga teacher who lives in London. She has her PhD in immunology and her master's degree in science communication, which I think is so great. Uh, Rachel also designs behavior change programs to support those living with chronic conditions. And she facilitates workshops to drive innovation in healthcare. And we are just really thrilled to have her here with us on the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being here today, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. Let's uh, dive in here. And uh, we'd love to hear just in your experience, have you seen the book Breath as like a very popular text in the yoga community? And, and also, what have you heard people saying about it? I think popular doesn't quite um, capture how popular it is. Um, I'd say it's almost like become it's got Bible status amongst Whoa. a lot of yoga teachers. Um, so it's being cited as like transformational. Um, people say, you know, you should read this. Um, the breathing practices have become really popular, like pranayama and stuff like that as a result. And like that's cited as like the reason to mm. you know to look into it and stuff as the science behind it yeah so bible i'd probably say yeah i mean it's best it was it was or is on best selling lists right yeah and then if you if so that's like nationally or internationally but then if you consider the the population of yoga practitioners who would uh, be predisposed to particularly elevating it right mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah but also in some in this particular case, um, you know, New York Times bestseller in the popular science category. So you're like, okay, well, everybody says this is like, you know, this is a popular <laughs> science book. So you have to trust that someone did their work <sighs> and like check the things. And um, you know, yeah, it's difficult. It's really difficult. But I think it helps explain why. I mean, one of the things we wanted to ask you about was just like, why, why do you feel like the book has such Bible-like status? I love how you said that. But I think part of it is um, that it is just like it's labeled popular science. It's just it's just easy to go along with that and just assume, you know, it's hard, like this hard, it's hard for consumers in general to like know how to discern, which is partly why we wanted to have this episode yeah. and this special conversation with you. But yeah. yeah, we can't always trust like the labels out there that are put on things. And well, I had this conversation with my husband, right? Because he's not, uh, he's not a scientist. Right. He's very cynical and critical. And like, he felt the same way about this book as I did. But I was saying like, as a non-scientist, like, what would you look for? Because I don't really know, right? This is a right. difficult one. If it's labeled popular science, all the reviews say, this is amazing. No one from nature or science magazine or even like i don't know scientific american or like popular I, I couldn't i actually checked before this call to see like did anyone from a science magazine actually write a review on this and i couldn't oh, find one 
So it's it's it is it is all the newspapers and the magazines, the normal magazines that are talking about this. So I guess oh, that makes it even more complicated. But potentially a good tip to look for, like if you're trying to assess like, well, how scientific is this book? Well, like who who are the endorsements like on the back cover and like what are their credentials? That's such a good point. Cause I know what you mean. I read through all the endorsements of the book Breath also, and I was it was just a lot of like um I felt like a lot of new age. Um, and alternative health practitioners, I felt like were a lot of the ones, and like you said, magazines, but not necessarily like like scientific um, organizations. Yeah, it's like the scientific organizations aren't even taking it seriously enough to review it. Yeah, possibly. That that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. That that might even be the lack of endorsements there already. Yeah. So we did want to ask you, kind of turning a little more to the content of the actual book itself. So. The basic premise of the book Breath is that the author, James Nestor, he kind of uh, performed like a self experiment in which he put silicone plugs into both nostrils so that he effectively plugged his nose nonstop for 10 days. I think that was like the experiment. And then that forced him to breathe through his mouth. And he basically the experiment was what will happen to me if I only mouth breathe for like 10 days. So and then he reports on what happened. Um, our question for you is, is that like a site, like, is that a scientific endeavor to, to do such a thing? Does that like help qualify this book as a science book or, or not? Like what, it, what's that about to do an experiment on yourself? So that is more like a journalistic mm. to make um, a popular science book or whatever content book more interesting for people to read. So Whenever you read, if you read things of this kind of genre that are written written by journalists, they tend to be written in this way because it gives a, a narrative. Now, it's not to say that you can't write a popular science book without a personal narrative mm -hmm. that isn't interesting. There are a lot of people who do that, who are scientists. Even the one, actually, I'm thinking there's, a, there's some scientists who add that in their books just to make it more relevant. So it's not... Mm -hmm. um, it's not uncommon. It's a it's a common technique to make it seem more interesting, and I guess in in this case because it's a journalist writing it, you you'd see it in like a like a feature article, for example. Like they'd frequently write a feature article in the same way, like in any topic that has a personal narrative running through it. So mm -hmm. essentially, it kind of pulls together all the other stuff that is being discussed, like all the other people he spoke with or the research that he looked at in this personal narrative to make the, the thread of the story and to make it more relatable and more interesting. But in like a, a scientific context, you might call that like a case study, which is like a very low form of evidence. But even a case study would be written by presumably a scientist or a practitioner, not written by the person who was the subject themselves. Yeah. So that, that's, you know, rife with the opportunity for bias. Oh, yeah. It, it isn't evidence. It's just there <laughs> to tell you the story of how it felt for one person. Right. And I wonder, Rachel, like what your opinion might be on this. But I um, the the claimed negative effects of, of mouth breathing, some of them I feel like could be in the realm of those symptoms could be kind of subjective, you know, like they could just be, they're not necessarily like objective, like we can measure these things. It's more like how you feel. I just wonder if you think that if um, someone 
has a bias already that mouth breathing is bad, which James Nestor clearly does. And then they go to plug their nose and only mouth breathe. I wonder if their bias or belief about what might happen could potentially influence how they might feel and then report about what they experienced. Yeah, so that's that's the, the confirmation bias that I mentioned in yes. the post that I wrote. So that's like a yes. very common bias in, in this kind of thing. And I just wanted to say also, like scientists have confirmation bias like 100%. Like I remember yeah. doing my PhD and Travis, maybe you felt the same where I was like willing the cells to do what I wanted them to do. <laughs> like saying, no, but this is, this is what's going to happen. And like when it didn't happen, trying to like, try and be properly scientific and actually write down what happened but scientists do this too scientists are human and they have the same kind of biases it's just that in there are checks and balances and there's more people involved in the study or like this peer review or people repeat it um etc etc um but confirmation bias is basically when you want to see something happen and like you look for the results that confirm what you want happen so in this case um and i have to say like i don't know enough about like nasal versus mouth breathing like most of the stuff i know is pro nasal breathing um but as you say like it's possible like like the effects or like the extent of the mouth breathing experience that he describes about like all of the symptoms that he felt and like how awful it was it's possible that they could have been tainted by confirmation bias so, like will will the symptoms to happen basically because they are quite extreme like some of the physiological things that he reports um, are quite extreme right that makes a lot of sense and thank you for explaining too that confirmation bias it, it's kind of just like um maybe natural to the way our brains work like everybody including scientists can operate with this but but just that explaining that like the greater um uh, context of a scientific study ideally checks and balances are built in there to like help kind of control for such things but it's like a natural human thing to yeah. be, be led around by our biases for sure but exactly. then that's just put potentially why a book like this, you know, we might want to look at it criti critically when we see that it's being claimed as like a, sci a popular science book. Yeah. And it, it's the same as like when building the narrative and selecting what evidence you're going to present right. is selecting the evidence that's going to support the thesis and the narrative you want to give. Right. So sometimes you might just see like, oh yeah, there's something there, but I'm just going to ignore it and just like write about the things that confirm the narrative that I want to present. Yes. That makes so much sense. Um, I think maybe just like a, a final question that we might throw at you about this is, so, so you, you mentioned confirmation bias, which I think is great for us and our audience to think about, and especially in terms of uh, the author of the book and how he wrote the narrative. Do you think that confirmation bias could also be playing a role in the fact that the book is so popular in the yoga world specifically? Like, do you think? Yeah. 100% um, and I meant to check this because I feel like there might be another bias in there but like, I was like I don't I can't think of what the name for it is but basically it is a thing where um, the whole narrative of the book is essentially aligned with a lot of the kind of yoga or complementary health it's not just yoga it's like qigong or tai chi or like other practices like it's all aligned with that or like all the breathing world is like a whole other beast um and that's aligned with that as well so um essentially like it's like it's like selecting the thing that's like telling you that what you're doing is yes. great keep doing yes. it yes um but i was also thinking there's something around like it makes you feel good <laughs> about what you're already doing. So there might yes. be something in addition to, it's not just confirming 
um, what you're doing, oh, but it's also that? making you feel better about what it is you're already doing. So you're like, oh, great, I'm so amazing because I was already doing this and like, <laughs> yeah, this is fantastic. I love how you put that. And I, I mean, I know we all, we all do that. Like it's an, we're not just trying to point a finger at this one, you know, right. it's, this is just an example to try to highlight so that we can all learn to maybe be a little more aware and intentional and critical in our thinking, but you're, it's so easy to be drawn to something that's already affirming the way that, that you, what you already do and what you already like to do. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. easy to like not said, be critical. We all, we all do it. It's, it's mm -hmm. human. It's human nature. You're all gonna, we're always gonna, and that's what the whole thing about all the biases that exist is things that um, scientists or behavioral scientists have recorded about how people behave naturally and like what drives our behavior and like confirmation bias is one of them. There's, there's like a whole list of tons of them out there. Right. Yeah. And in, in this particular book, there was no effort made to avoid that. <laughs> Maybe right. all effort was made to propagate that. Whereas if it were a, a scientific text, you know, systematic review, mm -hmm. there are you there are ways that you try to mitigate that uh, with your search criteria and your your mm -hmm. vetting of the the sources and all that. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's like why why we have science and why science is important is it's it's a system that attempts to try to minimize bias as much as possible. Because exactly. it's really hard for us to do that otherwise yeah and I, I mean i don't think there was anything malicious or like intentional about it it's just yes. normal like he went out and wrote this book and he collected the things that you know he thought were supporting his um thinking i think what happened after is probably more the problem like popular labeled as a popular science book like no one actually thinking about checking all of these things like some of these references are pretty dubious like some of these studies were really dubious like sample sizes of like 10 people or stuff like that or like citing like BKS Iyengar as like a reference is not really is not really a reference or Wim Hof himself like stuff like that so it's just like thinking about okay where do we want to place is this holistic health or is this more of like or a you know like a memoir type thing or is this popular science and i think that is the problem and i i just genuinely don't think it was anything malicious behind it it's just like snowballed and then because of confirmation bias then everybody's like oh my god this is the best thing ever yeah i think that's a really good point he the author probably didn't intentionally go out of his way to misrepresent he just is a journalist and not a trained scientist or scientific communicator to be able to know that a sample size of 10 is in, is not appropriate to make really definitive conclusions and that you can't cite people's opinions as evidence yeah. <laughs> or strong evidence at least. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And uh, Rachel, thank you so much for expressing that and Travis for affirming that to just, yeah, like um, no, no malice here. It's just like maybe um, this is, this is how it, how it ended up, how the book kind of ended up coming out when in, in the, in the style that it was written and then like kind of what's happened after this kind of snowballed yeah. since then. So, um, we so appreciate your taking the time to join us and to share both for the benefit of Travis and myself and for our whole audience and the yoga community in general, just with these, just sharing your, um, your excellent scientific communication skills and your insights with us. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, we will put links in the show notes so that everyone um, can find you. Your blog, would you like to tell really quickly um, your, 
Uh, what's the website where people can find you and sign up for your email list? So my website is geeky.yoga and it's got my blog and there's a link in there to sign up for the mailing list as well. It's just, it's a sub stack with a similar kind of URL. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it is in there. And I basically yeah. write, um, uh, post around the science of yoga and various different topics and a little bit about behavioral science and the newsletter is more about well-being and recommendations of things to read or listen to that are relevant to well-being. Sorry, and also yoga studies. Like I look at every month, like what was published, and I write a summary of those. Yeah, I love your newsletter. Oh, what a valuable resource! It so is, and I love the URL too. I, I think that resonated <laughs> with Jenny and me For immediately sure. because we often refer to our our treatments as geeky movement type oh. uh, content. So mm-hmm. kindred spirits. Yeah. So geeky.yoga is your website. Everyone should go there, check it out and sign up for Rachel's email list. And we'll have the links to everything in the show notes. But um, thank you so much for being here with us today, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to chat with you. And that wraps up our look at nasal versus mouth breathing. Remember that you can support our work to bring science-based education to our yoga and movement community through this podcast by becoming a supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast, starting at just $3 a month. Use the link in the show notes to become a supporter and you can cancel anytime. You can also support us by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And you can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter. And the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRollings.com, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. 